every generation, it seems like, or even at least every 10, even every 10 years, is everybody says this time is going to be different. Well, the, the more things change, the more the things stay the same. And so, uh, you know, when you're looking at the, you know, tool of mania uh, in the Netherlands in the 1600s, if you're looking at the uh, stock market in 1929, you're looking at the internet bubble, the financial crisis, and there are m multiple panics and manias throughout, there's dozens throughout history. And it, it seems like we're predisposed as human beings to, we like bubbles, and then we're surprised when they burst. <laughs> and, and it's it's like you're going back, uh, you know, you burn yourself on, uh, you know, on the stove. And you say, I'm not going to burn myself again. Well, um, Bernard Smith, who is an expert in, in bubbles, actually, and he went uh, on all types of bubbles, big bubbles, small bubbles, uh, with students, with, with foreign uh, currency traders. He found generally in the hundreds of experiments that he has run that it takes people about three bubbles to learn their lesson. Hmm. So I can testify that. It turns out that cryptocurrency doesn't always go up. I am obsessed, if you haven't noticed, I am obsessed with unpacking this recent FTX crypto exchange debacle, uh, in part because I think it's a microcosm of all the stuff that's wrong with crypto, at least much of it. And there's definitely stuff right about crypto. I'm not just railing on a one-sided rampage, sometimes I am, but generally not about crypto. But this is just fascinating to me. We had this MIT-educated golden boy, kind of white knight, savior of the industry. He was bailing out firms. He was donating uh, literally tens of millions of dollars to, to U.S. politicians. He was hobnobbing with regulators. Uh, he was driving a Toyota Corolla and said he was going to give 99% of his wealth away. It seemed so good. And he was such a humble guy. He lived with roommates, with nine other roommates. Well, come to find out, all 10 of them were apparently in some weird polyamorous relationship. Um, you know, the, the money donated to the uh, politicians was just kind of like, it was real money, but it was just kind of for show, he, he later admitted um, he, he was he, the, they had a team doctor who were, was prescribing amphetamines to, to this group to keep them hopped up all the time. Um, and they had engineered a backdoor with which they could transfer funds deposited at FTX, the exchange, which were supposed to stay there, transfer them secretly to make up for trading losses at Alameda Group, which was a, a separate trading firm that Sam Bankman Free, the guy I'm talking about, had obviously not at arm's length. So, and there's more. And now this, this blow up has caused uh, crypto to crash, caused a lot of uh, bankruptcy filings and other stuff around the industry. And I'm sure we're not done yet as of this filming. Uh, and not quite a Lehman moment, but it's the closest thing so far. And importantly, my Bitcoin is now worth less than I paid for it. So what does this mean? Uh, what should we do? Uh, what are the lessons to take away? Here to help me unpack this is Victor Ricciardi, or Victor Riccardi, I should say, better pronounced. Um, he is on the finance faculty at Tennessee Tech University. He is also the editor of three, three e-journals on behavioral finance with SSRN, Social Sciences Research Network, uh, which is basically where all the academic papers funnel through to be published. So he is probably uh, one of the most knowledgeable, in fact, definitely one of those knowledgeable people in this world on the topic of behavioral finance. And we have a lot of, and he has two books, I should say, Investor Behavior, and financial behavior. I have both of them. They're so good. I lent one out. I never saw it again. Okay. It's a good book. Um, anyway, long intro aside, uh, we have a situation that people are calling not 
a not a failure of crypto, but a human failure, a failure of the people in crypto. It, okay, you know, most failures are failures of the people in the situations, not not the actual circumstances. Uh, so what does this mean? Um, now, Victor, let me go, let me tee up the question, my first question like this. So economics is a social science. Uh, we all know that. And it is a recursive social science, meaning we, we're participants. We kind of decide the outcome of that social science. Um, there's no such thing as an objective valuation, uh, but there are objective inputs to valuations. Um, and some things use more of those objective inputs like uh, you know, cash flows or balance sheets or you know, audited numbers, things like that, with which there is more of a historical pattern of mean reversion. And some assets are priced with fewer, like gold, like art, and like cryptocurrency. Um, and crypto kind of almost has none. Uh, my, my take is that crypto as a technology is here to stay, that central banks will use it, that TradFi will probably embrace it. Um, but a lot of the money going into crypto was put in with the intention of getting rich quickly. And that promise is looking broken. Uh, and so I think a lot of the speculation, the speculative money is going to be evaporate because that, that promise is no longer there. Uh, we'll see limited use cases. I'm not against the technology itself, but this idea that everything is going to go to the moon seems like it's not going to work. Although the counterpoint would be that Bitcoin has been called a dying coin uh, literally hundreds of times. There's a website that tracks this and Bitcoin has continually rebounded. So maybe it'll rebound, maybe it won't. What's your take? Well, I think before thinking about the behavioral issues, um, if you're viewing this as a technology, like any technology, um, is this really, it's really, really the first or second stage. So even if you go back in the 1990s, the, the, the internet stocks and the whole euphoria behind that was it's going to change the world. Well, it did change the world, but many of the things they talked about in the late 1990s that were going to change the world didn't actually start to happen during the pandemic. So you're talking about lead times of possibly 10, 15, 20 years. So maybe Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are in the same boat. The next piece, um, you know, if you're talking about inputs, it's defining and separating with a more well-established financial securities or even currencies or even just cash. They, you can, you can measure risk um, and versus uncertainty. With any new technology, with any new, any type of new investment, any new type of security, there's just uncertainty. And then the other thing that makes it comparatively different is uh, the government um, hasn't really stepped in enough or even at all that to a degree with regulation. So, or, you know, whether so if you keep your, your cash in a bank and the bank goes under, you have your FDIC insurance, which I believe is currently $250,000 per account. Um, which the government defines as cash. Okay, well that's not going to apply. That's not going to apply to uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies because they haven't been defined in that manner. Also, they don't. They don't. Since they're not regulated, they don't qualify for that type of insurance. Then on the flip so, side, there's there's if it's a security, if you hold your your money at a, a brokerage house and it goes under, or if there's fraud, you have up to five hundred thousand dollars per account. In insurance, well, if it's not defined as a security either by the government, that insurance doesn't 
uh, hold as well. Then on top of it, um, many of these firms are located offshore, so they're not abiding by basic accounting principles. Uh, so that's another whole um, issue. So you're, you're, you're investing in something that doesn't really have a true foundation of regulation. Uh, you know, you're alluding to historical track record. Well, it doesn't even have the basic facets of any type of regulation yet to provide protection against downside risk through regulation or, or a type of government insurance. And so until that comes into play, I think there's going to be a, that big uncertainty with crypto and Bitcoin. And so is that going to take some time? Yes. I mean, if you, if you look at the regulation for the financial crisis of 2008, the government is net with the acts that were passed two years into the Obama administration. Many of those rules and regulations are just starting to go in effect now, nearly 15 years later. Hmm. So even once the government passes one, one set of regulations, say for crypto or Bitcoin, it's going to take multiple rounds of, of uh, acts. Then they have the right, the underlying um, statutes and, and codes to abide by and how you enforce things regarding crypto. So I, I don't think, I think people take for granted the value of a strong accounting system in the U.S. and the idea that you have government regulation. I agree with you, you know, and, and, and you and I, for, for the record, are both, you know, coming from the traditional finance background that, you know, that's our, probably our bias. Uh, but, but I agree with you. And it, it seems like FTX, for example, had almost a non-existent accounting system. Uh, I think it was John Ray III, whoever, I forgot his name, but the guy who was interim CEO on behalf of creditors and who was brought in to help fix Enron said this is worse than Enron. He's never seen a, a bigger f- complete failure of corporate controls than in this situation. And you know, I, I don't think these guys like set out from day one to defraud everybody, you know, in, in, in like a criminal mastermind sense. I just don't think that was their thing. I think they're, you know, focusing on making money, taking risks. You know, everybody was telling their geniuses, uh, you know, and, and who, who wants to bother with with keeping records? You know, that's 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 less sexy and, and is a slippery slope. And one thing led to another. Um, and, and then here we are. But underscores your point, which is we need like real accounting. Um, the other thing you mentioned, I think you're right that this could be something 10 or 15 years into the future. Um, I don't know what that something is. I mean, central bank digital currencies would seem to take away a lot of the transaction benefit of cryptos, although right now they're not really used for transactions anyway, um, despite being called cryptocurrencies. But real currencies certainly have speculative traders all the time. I mean, that's established, but they're mostly used as currencies. The speculative part is kind of a sideshow. With crypto, like the sideshow is the main show. They're not really used as currencies. They're basically used as as vehicles of speculation. And what I don't know, and maybe nobody knows the answer to this, is like if the music stops, if the punch bowl gets taken away, what's left? You know, I looked at some of the use cases of these cryptos and a lot of them, I mean, they do have some have legitimate use cases, like one one use case was selling insurance for cryptocurrency investors. That sounds pretty useful to me, but they could all be paid for with like real money. You didn't necessarily have to have a coin to do that. So uh, I mean, maybe maybe I'm just talking to myself. I don't know if you have a different point or you agree with me or not, but uh, I think we're all going to have a question mark in terms of like, what's what's the there there at the end of all this? And where does that leave the industry? Um, 
I think it leaves the industry a lot smaller. And the industry is small already. I mean, the total market cap of all the cryptos is something like, as we speak, something like $800 million. That's less than half of a Microsoft. That's, that's more uh, Amazon. Amazon lost more value in the past year than all of crypto is worth. So in a way, it's saved by the fact that it's so tiny that it's almost systemically irrelevant. You know, it would be like, uh, you know, Caesar's Casino uh, went bankrupt or, you know, if, if it's it's basically gamblers losing their gambling money. But it's not like a Lehman Brothers that's truly systemically interconnected. So that's probably the saving grace that I can see is it's just so small. Yeah. Well, so back to one, one of your points, especially the idea of a firewall, um, any brokerage house in the U.S. are not supposed to use client money. So the idea that you're using client money to cover losses or potentially margin calls when using leverage is a no-no. And additionally, uh, according to media products, I believe they didn't have a, a C- actual CFO. So I teach corporate finance. So you don't even. Have, so you're aside from just basic. What could go uh, wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but also, you know, back to that 1990s and now, and I don't know if this is exactly a perfect analogy, but you know, the, the hundreds of company internet companies that were in the late 1990s. How many survived? Uh, Yahoo, Amazon, uh, only only a handful. So is it, yep. it will be interesting to see is it's going to be a similar thing where are there going to be mergers of these currencies, um, you know, of these cryptocurrencies, and are they or just are some going to fade away the way those internet companies did? And so uh, I don't feel like, uh, but I don't feel like I'm an expert enough to say, say that. But I, I think that that's what if you're looking at it through a technology. That's what will happen is, you know, you know, really the, the law of the strongest or, you know, will take out the weakest. So the weaker currencies in theory will not survive. The, the ones that have val- true value and that have something that retain value should be the ones to survive. And then you'll have, you know, a second, third, you know, you'll have a 2.0 or a 3.0 of these of this technology. And uh, I think we'll see from there, but it, w- it w- will be very interesting. But also, every generation, it seems like, or even at least every 10, even every 10 years, is everybody says this time is going to be different. Well, the, the more things change, the more the things stay the same. And so, uh, you know, whether you're looking at the, you know, tool of mania uh, in the Netherlands in the 1600s, if you're looking at the uh, stock market in 1929, you're looking at the internet bubble, the financial crisis, and there are m- multiple panics and manias throughout the dozens throughout history. And it, it, it seems like we're predisposed as human beings to we like bubbles, and then we're surprised when they burst. <laughs> and and it's it's like you're going back, uh, you know, you burn yourself on uh, you know on the stove. And you say, I'm not going to burn myself again. Well. Um, Bernard Smith, who is an expert in, in bubbles, actually, and he went uh, uh, all types of bubbles, big bubbles, small bubbles, uh, with students, with, with foreign uh, currency traders. He found generally in the hundreds of experiments that he has run that it takes people about three bubbles to learn their lesson. Mm. So I can testify to that. So I lost money during the internet bubble of 1990s <laughs> from trading myself. So it made me get religion and believe in behavioral finance. But in 2008, when I should have been buying, I was so traumatized 
by the bubble of, inter of, of the money I lost in the 1990s, I was loss averse. But this time, during the pandemic, I viewed it as, but also what I learned is, um, I don't trade, but if I'm making a significant gain in a particular year, sometimes I just take some of my profits and reallocate them as like a, you know, as a rebal little bit of a rebalancing strategy, not on a yearly basis, but just really taking profits on a yearly basis or a monthly basis on my own. But also when the pandemic into that March 2020, when you had that major decline, I, I realized, okay, what am I going to do this time? I couldn't execute the last two times properly, so I went in and I bought. And when the, when the market roared back for that year and a half, I then started selling into that rally. So we do not have, so as human beings, we like to buy when the shiny apple is going up. But that's when actually we should be selling. And then, and, and then we're in a bear market right now. And if you use something like dollar cost averaging, this is the time when we should be buying if we're truly long-term investors. And, and then back to the crypto stuff, I, I haven't, you know, I look at an investment from this point of view. I will not invest something, at least if it doesn't have at least a 20-year track record, which crypto or Bitcoin doesn't have. Is there a way for me to value it based on the, you know, the things I've learned and I want to teach my students. If I can't do that, I don't invest in it. And am I willing to put enough of my significant of my portfolio, maybe 5%, 3% to make it my worthwhile? If I'm not, then I'm not going to make, if I put 1%, I'm not going to make much money from it anyway. So if I'm not willing to take enough of a risk into it, I will not invest in it. And I don't trade. So there seems to be a trading mentality behind this. Um, and when, um, no offense to Kim Kardashian. If I was going to start a reality <laughs> show and wish I was going to want to make $100 million, she would be my number one choice. But she wouldn't be the person that I would be going to, or celebrities in general, for financial advice. So when They're start, contrary indicators, almost yes, in this exactly. Case. Same thing even during the internet bubble. When my, when my mechanic was telling me to buy internet stocks, I should have known. Or when you're a YouTube driver during the financial crisis, or, 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 you know, whether recently, or, or a taxi driver is telling you, oh, I'm in these stocks and I trade the market, then it's time to realize you don't always need the, the financial indicators. You, you, need, you need to listen to the man on the street. <laughs> and when the man on the street or woman on the street is telling you something that you're looking at that person and you ask, and I, and I don't make assumptions. I'll ask them, what is their financial training or what they have done? And they'll say, oh, I'm investing in this for the first time. Then it tells me that enough of the populace have gotten. And that happens with every bubble. So that, that's even a good indicator of realizing the top has probably happened within maybe six months to 18 months. And it's time to run for the doors, I think. I love that logic. And, and, and one bizarre corollary, theoretically, if somebody watching is like a crypto bull, probably you're getting near a good buying point if, if you really truly believe because it's, it's certainly coming down hard. Um, I'm still too skeptical to buy. I'm kind of in, in your camp, Vic, but um, that's one corollary. And, and I agree with a lot everything you said, basically. I mean, even in the US, we had 2,500 different auto companies come and go over the years, and now we've got just a handful, right? Yeah. Like you said, hundreds of different e-commerce companies in the 90s, and we just got you know three or four survivors. 
it's probably going to be the same thing with crypto, assuming it doesn't get regulated out of existence. Um, I don't think it will, but, you know, that, that's a, a possibility. Um, and so, yeah, maybe you're lucky in one of the, the, the few survivors. But uh, I, even then, I would still disambiguate the utility from the speculative piece. And there's no guarantee it's going to shoot way up. I, I just don't know. Um, I was going to ask you, and I, I think I think you've answered it, but like, what's different or what's the same between and we've talked about behavioral finance before, and there's a whole litany of fascinating cognitive biases. And literally everybody can relate to somebody. We all have them in, in different ways in investing and, and frankly in life. But is this just a replay of the same biases we've seen in traditional finance? Or, or is there anything new or unique about crypto in terms of the biases you see at work? Um. I, I would say, well, the, the basic attributes of any model is herd behavior. So everybody wants to go with the herd. Also in group behavior, there's something called social loafing where people are individuals are very lazy. They don't want to do the, uh, the research or the due diligence and they just follow the herd as well or other group members. Um, group think, you know, you have people who are very persuasive. But I, I would say also probably this is uh, what, what I think is interesting, especially if, if you relate to also, um, I think the other issue that um, I think may tie in with the crypto and the Bitcoin because it's more recent is along the meme stocks. And, and what I think has really, um, so maybe, the, uh, so I'll, I'll say the financial news networks or the media platforms, maybe the last 15, 20 years, going back to the 90s, that maybe covered stocks were one issue. But I, I would say more um, because the Internet is a coming of age, you have these influencers. And I believe that the, these influencers who are making stock recommendations, I mean, I'm not even talking about the Kim Kardashians. I'm talking about just even just people who are really claiming to be experts. Saying, yeah, some dude on YouTube. And I've seen yeah. them before, too. Yeah, now, that's so, where Gen Z and, and, and millennials get a lot of their financial advice. Yeah, I mean, and that's why the, the other underlying thing I don't think it's really discussed is these people don't have any training. They don't have, from what I could tell, most don't have any, um, you know, that's another thing that's not, even, they're not that's another point of uh, not of things not being regulated is these people are not true advisors. And I'm not saying as a financial expert, I say I, I know everything because I have book knowledge, but they don't even, they, they don't even have basic knowledge, say, of, of diversifying your assets. So the idea of, okay, you want to put some, I tell my students, if you want to put some, 50 bucks or $500 into something, experiment if it's, it's something that you can lose. But if, if all you have is $10,000, $20,000, people are putting all that money in. And, and you're going to hear, so you're going to hear, of course, the people who made a ton of money, which are the small minority, but the people who lost a lot of money typically don't admit it. Yeah, I, I admit it 20 years later because I got religion, <laughs> but most people are not going to admit when they lost money on something or made a bad financial decision. So what I describe to my students are, you know, you, you see uh, the poker games or hold'em contests on TV and you see 10 people and they're all, you know, a million dollar jackpot. I try to explain to my students that the people who are on TV are from a small uh, from a large group of people who probably put up $10,000 each, starting with 10,000 people online, and now they have dwindled to 10%. So those people are professional gamblers, similar to professional traders in the market, 
who are able to make a living from this because they have the right secret sauce. I tell my students, I'm not that smart. I'm not going to go on Shark Tank and come up with a great business. Probably, at least I don't. I'm at least and become an entrepreneur probably at this stage of my life and, and make a million dollars. I'm not lucky enough to win the lottery. So the greatest way that I could tell my students is to be is a slow, stupid way of high value money, high dividend paying stocks, and the old ways with a hundred year track record is the slowest, boringest way to people becoming millionaires. And most people don't want to hear, a lot of people just don't want to hear that because it's not the shiny red apple. It's not the gambling effect as well. But I really think, and coming back to my other point, the, the influencers, I think, especially even the idea of, you know, when they were looking to take out institutional investors who were squeezing short, um, very interesting with the mean stocks that this online community, Reddit, really much more advanced uh, version of the Yahoo um, message yeah. boards of the 1990s really made a, a statement. Um, and then and then I think and I think that's what's a little bit different this time is there's there is a real community online community base with a, a much greater high resolution technology that, that I think would even enhance the behavior and the decisions that much more. And that, that's fascinating to me. And this is true in crypto and true, like you said, in, in meme stocks. And if you look at, at the GameStop stuff, for the first few days, it was driven by retail traders. Um, and, and they correctly identified a good target. But after that, the, the majority of the trading volume was institutional. So in other words, retail people lit the match, but institutional and money was kind of the lighter fluid that, that made the fire grow. So the institutions were playing off of the retail momentum. Um, and so there's kind of interesting back and forth dynamic. And I think, I mean, yeah, we haven't really seen that again in a GameStop level sense, but I think that dynamic just with these new younger investors who are on social media, who like to kind of crowdsource together and do things like, I think that's going to be a new force in finance to one degree or another. And also during the pandemic, a lot of people have a lot of time on their hands. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah. So um, it will be interesting to see what is going to be the lesson of, of a bear market now, because this is actually the first phase of people actually going through a loss of money. And yeah, these young people, it's their first time. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, last question for you, Vic. Uh, what should be done? You know, pretend, pretend you're you're the regulator. Um, what, what do you think the right move here is for crypto? I read an, a Financial Times piece. I'm forgetting the author, but it was actually two authors, academics. I'm forgetting who they were. But they basically said, don't regulate crypto, let it burn. Because if you try to regulate it, you're conveying some sense of legitimacy on the whole thing. And it's so far beyond repair that it's just better to let it uh, let it just, uh, you know, fizzle out. Um, that's an extreme view. Uh, you know, I, I tend to think we're going to see regulation. Um, do you have a standpoint on this? I, I would say um, it, it's taken hold already. It seems like it's already grown into our financial system. So... For the good of the public, I mean, my main issue is I don't, you know, my, my other concern was originally, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen, is, you know, I don't mind these people lose, learning their lessons and losing money, but I, I, my other concern is that hopefully this doesn't want to be a contagion similar to like the financial crisis of 2008, and then you would have to have a bailout of all these uh, of people. So it doesn't look like that's going to happen, but I think there has to be even if you weren't going to have re regulation and, 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 and the idea of, this, of the 
securities itself. Uh, I think investor having even the government just spending money on talking about the uh, the you know the attributes of what a good investment is. Talking about in general, you know, uh, so so if you don't get, I don't want to call it a scam, but you know, what are attributes of a good investment are government regulation. Uh, does the firm, is the firm actually based in the U.S.? And some ba some basic issues like this. Also, at the very least, I think there should be regulation of the people who are, are calling themselves financial advisors. And even if crypto is not the cryptocurrency and the companies aren't based here, if they are selling a product and they're located in the United States of America, those people should be regulated regarding this type of stuff. That that would be the minimum. Just to just to uh, just to create a more transparency of people, not you know, because these people, from what I can tell, whoever is talking about crypto and trading people, I can offer online people to, to train me, and they're in their twenties and looking at their backgrounds, like whether it's Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, they don't seem to have any financial trading, and there still seems to be an undercurrent of people making money doing this. So that's why I'm completely not even. Uh, familiar with, I'm not, I don't claim to be an expert in it. I'm looking more uh, from a, uh, I, I feel like from the clouds a little bit, but just basic common sense and basic regulation. I, I, I tend to. But be, people are geniuses, right? Because they bought crypto early and now they made a ton of money and that's what. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, it equals one, right? Yeah, dumb luck. I mean, some people are that fortunate, but those, the, as I said, those are the stories that people hear. They don't hear the. You know, majority of people who bought at a high rate, and I mean, the Nasdaq from the internet high, uh, high is going to two thousand, um, dropped ninety percent. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you know, so um, you know, is this going to go down? Will this go down ninety percent? I don't know, but that's that. Once the bubble has burst, that you know, it, it takes a while to truly hit a, a real bottom. Yep. And, and, and pain is a good teacher, pain for, for better, for worse. And by the way, let's remember, too, that at least for FTX, the crypto exchange, um, Sequoia was an investor and Dreesen Horowitz was an investor. And I think a lot of other very sophisticated, I mean, these are amongst the most sophisticated investors in the world. And even they, I read some article, didn't perform like there, there were basic red flags that a standard a due diligence checklist would have uncovered like the weird audits or the separate auditors for for the U.S. and the, and the, the Bahama mm -hmm. entity, um, things like that, that they just kind of looked over because guess what? They were drinking the punch also. And, and you know, when you're dealing with crypto, all the regular rules go out the window. So um, I, I would say those cognitive biases apply at all levels of sophistication. And I mean, these people should have known better. They could have probably explained to someone else how important due diligence is, but uh, they themselves didn't didn't practice that. Uh, but hopefully, hopefully with this pain, they they, they will now. I mean, they, I think they wrote it off. It's a zero in their books. Yeah, I mean, you know, also the fact that, you know, at, at the, min the minimum regulation that I would think would be important is to ensure that this does not become a contagion and threaten our overall financial system, then we have to do a bailout. So I, as, as I've gotten older, I'm, a, I'm about downside risk. So that downside risk is protecting my own portfolio, the portfolios of, of others, and of the general public. So we don't have to do bailouts again like we did in the past. Think, fingers crossed for that. Um, uh, Victor Riccardi, 
professor of finance and one of the world's foremost experts on behavioral finance. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And as always, thanks to you guys for watching us at home. Thanks for having me. Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I, um, if you just search by my name or the term behavioral finance, I have uh, over 70,000 Twitter followers. And, and it's really you, right? It's not yeah, Elon it Musk or someone me. else pretending to be your account. Okay, okay. It's really you. And I'm thinking eventually about getting verified. I'm just waiting for them to get the bugs out of that. <laughs> Got it. And then you'll pay your eight bucks. Yes. All right, there you go. Follow, follow Vic on Twitter if, if you'd like more from him. And thanks again, guys. Hi there. I'm Brian Christopher. My team and I write the Follow the Money Investment Newsletter published by South Bank Research. And in these videos, we try to give you some ideas to think about. Some are timely, like last week when I gave you a potential crypto trade idea. This week's idea may be timely, or it may just be something to squirrel away for future purposes. It depends on your feelings about the U.S. dollar. Take a look at this chart. The dollar recently stopped rising for the time being. In fact, from 3 November to 15 November, it fell 5.8%. That's the first time it's fallen that much in eight trading days since March 2009. It fell that much on, in December 2008, but other than that, we've only seen moves that were this big back in the 80s. Do you remember the 80s? Were you ever hungry like the wolf? Wait, don't answer that. This dollar weakness led me to wonder... What happened to stocks during periods of dollar weakness, this like crazy sizable dollar weakness? So first, I needed to identify the time frames. I looked at the following down moves in the dollar. You can see the top, the left top to right bottom for each of these periods in this chart. January 2017 to a bottom in February 2018. June 2010 to April 2011, and a move of similar magnitude, March 2009 to November 2009, and then also in November 2005 to April 2008. You'll note I didn't look at the post-COVID time period. That was an everything boom. It felt fake to me in a way that's unlikely to be repeated, so I ignored it. Let me know if you don't like that. I'll consider running this analysis again for you. Also, I looked at UK, US, and Canadian stocks, ETFs, and REITs. I screened for shares that posted a total return of at least 100% during the, during the above time periods. And they had to have at least a $100 million market cap at the start of the period. That makes the results more realistic, meaning... I generally won't tell you about super small cap stocks in these videos, so I don't want to tell you about them in my historical analysis. Here's what I found. The post-financial crisis pop in 2009 had the most doublers. But the thing that we noticed here was that certain sectors did better than others. Utilities was the worst sector. We don't often see utilities post doubles over short time periods. Of course, they may have done well relative to their history, but in this exercise, the shares had to eclipse 100% total returns to be considered. 
It likely wasn't surprising that IT stocks did well. They often do. But the winner of this exercise, whether you expected it or not, was material stocks. By and large, these are the shares of companies that deal in commodities. And I would suggest this shouldn't be a surprise to you because commodities are generally priced in dollars. When the dollar weakens, the prices of commodities rise. The UK material stocks that made the cut in one or more periods included names like Rio Tinto, which is Rio on the LSE, Anglo-American, which is AAL in London, it, it more than doubled twice, and Ferroglobe, which is GSM in the US. Names like that. And what does this mean for us? Quite simply, we need to watch the dollar. Its moves in either direction can be signs of things to come. For example, during the most recent dollar swoon, take a look at the prices of certain commodities. Now, I've talked mainly about the case if the dollar falls, as it did recently. But remember, central banks like the Fed may keep hiking. In fact, that's the most likely case. To date, the Fed's people have only mentioned the possibility of slowing the rate hikes. This rate hiking party isn't over. So remember this for this and any other wish list that you're putting together. Stocks across the board face headwinds because of this. Thank you for watching.